With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good evening. My name is Brian Watt. I'm the morning news anchor for KQED Radio, and I'm pleased to be the moderator for tonight's Commonwealth Club program with author Walter Mosley. This program is part of the club's Good Lit series with support from the Bernard Osher Foundation. We also thank Marcus Books in Oakland, not too far from where I'm sitting now. Marcus Books is handling book sales for tonight's program. Walter Mosley. What can we say about Walter Mosley? He is a giant of American letters. He is the author of more than 60 critically acclaimed books and is one of the most admired writers in America. He's with us tonight to discuss his new book, Blood Grove, the latest in his series of books starring Easy Rollins. This is the 15th book in the Rollins series. The awards keep coming in for Walter Mosley. Last year, it was the National Book Foundation's prestigious Lifetime Achievement Award. He was the first black man to win that honor in its 32-year history. And last year, his debut novel, Devil in a Blue Dress, marked 30 years since publication. Walter Mosley, it is my honor to welcome you for the first time to the Commonwealth Club. So let's dive in. Blood Grove is set in 19... 69, and a lot of us feel like we know Easy Rollins, but I want to ask you first, where do we find Easy Rollins in terms of his perspective and his potency? <laughs> wow, that's an interesting, um, interesting word. It's 1969, so really, it's, it's the, the middle of the Vietnam War, it's it's the middle of the uh, of the counterculture, the hippie movement. It's the middle of of of, of the civil rights movement. Uh, the you know that maybe the second part of of the civil rights movement. Uh, it's America in a state of transition, um, and it's Easy Rollins, um, who's you know forty nine years old at this time. He's been he's been around. He, he's uh, he's trying to make a life for himself. He's even succeeded in making a life for himself. But, you know, one of the things that, that happens is um, it's okay. You know, say so you've done it, you know, you've made it, you've, you, this is your life, it works. Uh, but that he's the kind of guy who keeps on saying, well, what if I did this? Or what if we tried this? Or maybe this should happen. Or my, my adopted daughter seems to want to know about her family. Maybe I should work on that, you know? So, as he keeps trying things, of course, being a black man in America and just being an American alone, um, he keeps on putting himself into jeopardy. I think about how many people encountered Easy Rollins, which is devil in a blue dress. This is a younger Easy Rollins. This is 1948, if I'm not mistaken, for devil in a blue dress. So here we are, a good 21 years uh, past in his life. Do you ever think of him as as someone who gets wiser, maybe even loses a step, you know, as a character? Well, you know, 
It's, it's, again, it's a, it's a good question because in some ways, yes, he's wiser, he knows more, he, 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 makes, uh, he makes decisions not, not uh, uh, based on some kind of immediate uh, feeling or response. But in other ways, like for instance, with his daughter, which I, I just enjoy, he has two kids. He has a, a son, Jesus, who's grown up and married and lives, you know, lives with a woman, has a young, young child. Um, but, but the, uh, but the thing is, is that he's still, you know, a, a victim or subjected to his own upbringing. So even though he lives in a, a place that's n- no stranger is ever going to wander into, it's on top of a mountain, it's hidden from anybody else, but there are other houses there. Easy comes home one night uh, the, the, in, the, in the beginning of the, the book and, and, the, and the door, the front door is uh, ajar. It's not open, but it's ajar. And he comes in and he's mad at his 14-year-old daughter. He's, what's wrong with you? The door is open. And she goes, Dad, I know everybody who lives around us. She says, you don't really know them. And, and, and she goes, Pop, Dad, what's wrong? What, what happened today? And, and something happened today. He, he, something happened that, that kind of put him over the end. And so when he finds the door open, he's upset. And she goes, okay, Dad. I'll keep the door closed and I will keep it locked. I promise you. Not because she's worried, not because she needs to be worried, but because easy is, is upset, you know? So there, there are limits in his own life uh, that, that need to be answered. And, and, you know, that, that talks a a lot about his relationship with his daughter, but it's also about his relationship to life. And your question, like, is he wiser? Yes. Is he wisest? No. You, obviously touched on the black man in America and and what he has been through that day. There's actually a moment earlier in the day that I found very interesting. Uh, there's a short passage of the book during which a lot jumped off the page at me, and I'm wondering if you could read a, a little short passage um, starting on page 13 uh, when um, Easy Rollins... Uh, finally has a moment to himself. And for me, this is like a a mental check-in with someone that we know. And we're sort of getting a sense of his state of mind. But but I want you to set it up the way you want to set it up. Well, I'm not going to set it up at all. I'm just going to read it. But I want you to know that I usually don't just read, uh, you know, from a book because I was that kid in school when they asked you to read, I couldn't. But I'll, I'll, I'll do this now. We'll see how it does. Okay. I leaned back in my ample oak throne and sighed deeply. Alone at last, I said aloud. Either for good or not for long, a bodiless voice intoned. In life, that voice belonged to an old man I knew only as sorry. He was the wisest man of my childhood, whose advice would come to me every couple of years or so to remind me that I didn't know everything, and so to watch out for banana peels and blind corners, jealous husbands and cunningly wives. More than once, I worried that the voice was an indication of severe mental disease. But then I'd remember that we lived in a world filled with insanity, where war, nuclear threat, and the slaughter of children crowded every day with distress. In the America I loved and hated, you could make it rich or more likely go broke at the drop of a robber baron's hat. 
That's why I had a pile of cash hidden somewhere safe, no rent or mortgage payment, and no property tax either. And that was just the uh, that was just the material of life. My true wealth was a small family, a few friends, and a phone number that was unlisted even to the police. There were just these were just normal precautions. One thing I never forgot was that I was a black man in America, a country that had built greatness on the bulwarks of slavery and genocide. But even while I was well aware of the United States' crimes and criminals, still I had to admit that our nation offered bright futures for any woman or man with brains, elbow grease, and more than a little luck. I thought, I thought you did great there, by the way. Um, I, I Where... Were you, what was going on in our world when you were writing that passage? My God, I wonder what that was. I mean, it was a, a couple of years ago. Uh, we're in the middle of uh, uh, Mr. Trump's uh, presidency. Uh, uh, we, we were, uh, uh, you, know, uh, we, you know, we're always on the verge of, of, of an issue about Black Lives Matter. Um, we're uh, always in a, in a world, I mean, I, you know, one of the things about the people who get so upset, you know, about, you know, uh, pro-Trump people, which I, I understand why they are, you know, mostly white, mostly male, but not all, uh, who, who are thinking that, wait a second, the life I used, I was promised I'm not getting anymore. And, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, uh, Black Americans and many uh, Americans of color understand from, you know, from forever. But, um there's there's been a lie perpetrated that the the reason that uh these people who haven't had this feeling before um that that the reason they're feeling it is because people of color people from across the border uh you know all kinds of you know uh different uh, what they call deviant uh folks have taken from them but really you know it's the issue of 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 economy it's the issue of who owns the uh, the land that we walk upon? Who owns the air that we breathe? Who owns the machinery that we use? The energy that we have? The water that comes to us? You know, who owns that? And you know, the one thing that almost everybody who asks that question knows is it's not me. It's somebody else. And I think that that uh, you know, but. I always think that. I mean, that's that's the America that I live in. It, there, it, there's there's a there's a world where um, people are told, "Well, you ha you're an important part of this world," and but there's a world that tells us, "Man, just just step back and sit down because you don't own shit," you know. <laughs> All right. Um, you, that passage started with the mention of this voice from someone called Sorry. Yeah. In your mind, is Sari a real person? Well, Sari is many real people. I mean, most uh, people who live lives, you know, uh, very close to that line. I mean, you know, most people in America, if you ask them what class they are, they'll tell you they're middle class. At least that has been true up until the last four or five years. The truth is, most people in America are working class and coming out of the lower working class, worried about falling into the, to, to, uh, you know, below the poverty line. Everybody who lives below the poverty line knows somebody like Sari. 
So I comes up and he says, how you doing today? You know, and he says, what you thinking today? What, what you doing today? And when they say something, that person reinterprets their world and says, well, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to live. You know, this is where you need to go in order to, you know, to, you know, to even have a chance at survival. Um, you know, and sorry, sometimes a man and sometimes a woman. Uh, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it, it's somebody who act, looks at you and sees you and understands where we are in this world. That that's that's sorry. So, you know, it says you know, sorry. You know, looks at easy alone at last. You know, uh, you know, uh, either forever or, or or not for long. You know, and uh, that's what easy has to deal with. And when he remembers that, he he it kind of reinvigorates his sense of survival. I notice here that you also, Easy Rollins, brings up the possibility of mental disease. This is an issue that we're thinking about very, very differently today than, say, 30 years ago. And yet, Easy Rollins is is very aware of the demons that people are struggling with. Have you, in, in thinking about mental illness and how it comes through in your writing. Has that evolved as, as you have written or? You, well, you know, I think, think as, as we, as we change language, actually it's not 30 years ago, it's 50, you know, for easy. And then it's, yeah, 1969. But. Um, I think about 30 years of you writing easy Rollins. On, yeah. From the publication. And I'm, I'm really thinking that I actually caught 19, the 1960s. So, you know, but, but, but regardless, it's, but yeah. It, it, it it's you know i think that anybody you know who lives in a house with somebody else who might who who's living on the edge who might go crazy any moment or somebody next door who might go crazy any moment you know who said you know this is a, an interesting thing you know i remember once my father was telling me he said you know what do you see that man just strolling across the street like that you know, and I said, yeah, dad. And he said, you know, there was a man who did that about four weeks ago. He was just strolling across the street thinking he had all the time in the world. The guy in the car got so mad, he, got, he shot him, you know. Now, he, he might not, you know, be, be would, he maybe he wouldn't explain to me, you know, what the particular psychosis this man was going through when he shot the pedestrian who was taking his time walking across the street. But he was telling me, he said, you know, uh, people out there are crazy. A lot of them are crazy. You don't know what might happen. You have to, at every moment, be watching every event that happens around you. Uh, and so when Easy worries about his own, I mean, because Easy is a really smart guy. So not only is he looking for it in the outside world, he's also looking for it inside of himself. And he says, you know, I, I, I used to think that I was going crazy, but when I think about what I read in the newspaper every day, I'm not going crazy. I, I'm living. I'm living a normal life, considering what I have to face. What I what I have to face in order to survive. Do you feel like in the last few years, the United States has become more aware of its crimes and criminals? This is sort of the end of the passage. I think that America has become more aware of of who it is. I mean, you know, I was, I was talking to, uh, you know, a couple of friends who are much younger than I am, uh, you know, when the, the, the big Black Lives Matter m movement, they're saying, oh my God, this is terrible. This is awful. Do you see what's happening? And I said, well, yeah, I see what's happening. I think it's pretty cool. 
And they go, but but it looks like a, a worldwide revolution. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I said, except for if you were around when I was around in the first Watts riots, uh, at the end of that, you know, more than 40 people were killed and most of them were black people. And everybody who was part of those riots was a black person. And today I'm looking out and I'm saying, well, there's black people, there's white people, there's yellow people, there's brown people. They're all out there together. And, and so I said, so I think it's people are more aware of who they are in relation to the world that they live in. Um, You know, and if you're younger, because America has no concept of history, uh, you you may not be aware of of those those issues. But but I am. So, yeah, I, I think that people are more aware in a pedestrian sense. You know, people, the music, what musical people listen to, well, they listen to hip hop a lot. They're listening listening to that music. And that music talks about what it's like to be living in in, in the city. And most of that in the city experience is is black people. And so they know more about the history of black people. They might not even know they know more about that history. They said, well, you know, what they know is just a fact. Because, you know, starting with Snoop Dogg on, this is, you know, this is what they've been lectured to uh, through the music they're listening to. Um, and so there's an o- awareness, but there's not necessarily an awareness of being aware. I find the relationship that Easy Rollins is having with Asiet, I think is how you write her. This is really, really interesting. The way you write about it being sort of right in the creamy center of the sexual revolution. Um, Can you just talk a little bit about the themes you wanted to explore? Essentially, the relationship between a black man and a white woman. Um, I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Well, you know, I mean, you know, Aziette is a a French woman who was who was a who lived in, as a, a child, lived in France when France was occupied by the Germans. And, 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 and she felt, uh, you know, liberated by the soldiers, especially the black soldiers who had a whole different relationship to what she was feeling than the white soldiers. White soldiers, we're, we're Americans. The black soldiers said, well, hey, listen, we know what you're feeling like. We've been through that too. Um, and so when she came to America and she worked for this, you know, hyper-rich guy who easy knows, um, and she meets him, you know, they, they become, you know, I mean, they start seeing each other. Uh, it's, I mean, yeah, they're lovers. Yeah. But, but they start seeing each other and, you know, Easy's relationship to her is it's, it's complex. She's 20 years younger than he is. Um, she's uh, French. And so she's not, when she, he talks to her, it's not like talking to somebody who's American, you know, cause Americans, you know, they believe in, in white people and black people. The French say, well, I believe in French and English and Spanish and Greek. And, you know, those are all the people that the, the, the idea of talking about race to them doesn't really make sense. Um, and, 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 but also easy has other thoughts. If he, he she says, um, why don't we go to your house? He says, okay, and he's driving the car, and she's sitting next to him. Now, he knows that if, if a policeman sees them, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be trouble. So just driving the car with the woman that he you know, wants to spend the night with, who wants to spend the night with him, 
is a danger. It's not just the emotional danger of relationship and, you know, are we going to be together? Aren't we going to be together? All that stuff. It's also this, I might get killed. Somebody might pull me out of the car and shoot me for being uh, sitting next to you in this car. Um, And he has to be aware of all of that. The the wonderful thing about his relationship with Aziad is she understands that because of her history, because of, of Germany, because of, 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 of black soldiers from America, she, she actually understands it. And, and uh, I mean, they're not on the same page with each other, you know, which, you know, it's kind of normal in any relationship, but um, it's, it's, it's a moment where you get to talk about how difficult it is just being you. You know, some people say, well, I met, uh, met my girlfriend, you know, we got in the car and we, we, and we drove off to, you know, to the beach, you know, he just says, well, we, you know, we got in there, but then a policeman was behind us and he, he followed us for quite a few miles. And, you know, I, I don't know whether, you know, and, and of course, you know, it, it, all your friends, have, you know, if it was uh, Mouse, you know, uh, Mouse would, you know, reach over, you know, into into whatever was next to him, and he put his gun across his lap. He said, "Well, honey, uh, this might be quite a ride, you know." And, and she is, either has to be with that or not, you know. I mean, it's a uh, it's a it's a very interesting world and a very interesting experience um, that a lot of people in America don't even know. I mean, because they've never experienced it. They say nobody questions who I'm sitting next to, you know. I'm struck by how often easy gets messed with even when he's just in a car by himself <laughs> let alone with a white well you know i mean easy says he says he's he's been stopped so many times and questioned so long that he could take that amount of time and make himself a 13 year old boy who's experienced nothing but op- oppression and hatred and and dislike I, that's how much time he's spent being stopped by people uh, questioned by people, uh, uh, interrogated by people. Uh, and not because he was involved in some crime, trying to solve some kind of crime, just because he was walking down the street, just because he was driving in the car, just because he was in a neighborhood that somebody else thought he shouldn't be in. So you were born in Los Angeles. Um, this, uh, Blood Grove is kind of the orange groves of Orange County. Is that a place you got to a lot? Did what were the orange groves of Orange Orange County like when you were growing up? You know, I'm, I'm in LA now, and I talk to people, and 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 you know, when I talk to people who are like 30 or younger, I say, you know, why they call that Orange County? And they say, uh, no. Why? I said, because it just used to be just orange groves. And they go, really? You know, because there are no orange groves there now. I mean, you got to go all the way out to, to Riverside to even begin to see orange groves now. Um, and yeah, but, and so listen, uh, you don't have to spend a lot of time out there to be incredibly impacted by, oh my God, this is, this, these are all orange trees and they, they go on for miles and miles and miles, you know? Now it's just houses, but, you know, it was something else before. As I mentioned, Devil in a Blue Dress, the book, turned 30 last year. The movie turned 25. All of these Easy Rollins are so screen-worthy. Plenty of people agree that, at the very least, Easy Rollins should be a TV series. What have you wanted for Easy beyond the pages of your books? 
Well, I don't want anything freezy beyond the pages of the book. I mean, the books are the book is the the best thing I could have. I mean, it'd be nice to make movies because then I could make more money. Uh, it would be nice to make movies because then more people would b- buy the book. Uh, you know, I mean, there 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 are moments. I mean, I'm not. You know, I. You know, I do a lot of things in a lot of writing. I work, you know, write for magazines. I write for television. Sometimes I write for film. But if, if somebody comes up and asks me, they say, well, Walter, what, what do you do? You know, if I just meet somebody, you know, because people don't know who I am, which is actually nice. Uh, they, they say, well, what, do you, what do you do for a living? I say, well, I'm a, I'm a novelist. That's just what I say. That was, I always say that. You know, I don't, I don't say anything else. And, and, I'm, and I doubt if I ever will say anything else. I'm a novelist. That's what I do. And, um, you know, I'm, and I'm happy with that. Yeah, you know, you understand, it, it's really hard, you know, especially, you know, I mean, what, how, how to say this? There's a lot of uh, literature and film uh, uh, based on the, the preconceptions of white America, what black people are, you know. So, you know, it's, it's more likely to have a, a TV series based on Shaft than it is to have a, a, a TV series based on Easy Rollins. You know, because, you know, Shaft is a, a cartoon character. It's not that I don't like Shaft. Don't get me wrong. But you don't have the political questions that Easy Rollins brings up. Easy Rollins, even in this book, he, you know, or not this book, but the previous one, Charcoal Joe, he, he, you know, he's supposed to go to this uh, kind of fancy jail. And he drives to the, the Santa Monica and he, and he walks in the ocean, you know, on the sand down to the beach early in the morning, seven o'clock. And while he's looking at the ocean, some people, uh, he hears footsteps behind him and he, he realized, oh, that must be the police. And they say, excuse me, sir. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yes, officer. What, what is it that you want? So well, we're wondering, uh, you know, what are you doing here? And they said, well, I'm, I'm standing on a public beach and I'm looking at the ocean. And they said, yeah, but why are you here? And they said, there is no other reason, officer. I'm standing on a public beach. I'm looking at the ocean. I have a meeting in a couple of hours. I want to go there. But I thought I'd come early because I don't usually go to the beach. Now, listen, nobody else has to explain why the fuck they're going to the beach, right? I mean, come on. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't have to explain it. But you do, you know, if, if you're not in the place you should be in, you know. Now, of course, it's also true that if you're like a, a white guy, and uh, you're in, uh, you know, South Central, or you're in the barrio. Police might stop you there too, but they're still stopping you for a racist reason. Now, I write that in a, in a story, and somebody says, "Well, I don't know how we're going to put this on television because, you know, people might get upset that that we're talking about it." And you know, America is based not on democracy but on capitalism, and so. Uh, we need to make money to keep our shows on television. You know, I've, a lot of times, I, one time I went to one of the major studio, the major, you know, uh, uh, television uh, stations and I, and I wanted to do these wrongs and they really liked it. But they, they said to me, I really, I really, I really appreciate it. They said, look, we have a show, you know, you know, with the, the, the two female white detectives and then we'd have easy wrongs. So, but then we have another show. Now who's, a lot of people are not going to stay on after the two female white detectives to go through e- easy rollers to see the next show. So, so, you know, you really don't fit. They said this to me and I went, okay, yeah, right. You know, 
you know, uh, what's that? Uh, Eddie Murphy says, you know, as long as n there's no niggas up in here, you know, I mean, that's basically what they said to me. It wasn't because they care, you know, their, their son goes out with a black woman. But the problem is that are they going to make the money? Things are changing. Things are different. Uh, Amblin uh, just, uh, you know, uh, uh, bought the, not bought, but, you know, rented the Easy Rollins series. And uh, they want to do a television show. And maybe we're going to do that. That might, be, that might be good, you know. And, you know, if they don't ask me to write it, maybe, you know, whoever they get to write it is going to write out all of the, the um, politics that Easy Rollins represents. I don't know. Right now you're getting a lot of attention because you are involved with Snowfall, the FX series on the crack epidemic in L.A., 1983. How'd you get involved with that? Well, you know, five years ago or six years ago, whatever it was, I got a call from John Singleton. He said, Walter, uh, I'm doing this television show, and it's about the crack epidemic in the 80s. I need you in the room. And I said, John, look, man. I don't write television shows. I don't know anything about that stuff. He said, that's okay. You don't have to write anything. Just come, just be in the room. You'll be an advisor and you'll be part of the room. And I said, okay. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know like how many people know John, but John was a great man. He, you know, people would come up to him, people like, you know, like he'd be in his neighborhood because he was always in the hood. And, you know, uh, a, a woman come up to him and, she, and he's, oh, hey, how you doing? Dad, I haven't seen you in a while. She go, yeah, you know, I've been in prison. Yeah, I just got out. I'm trying to get a job. You know, it's hard. And he said, well, why don't you come see if you can, you know, be on the crew on my television show? You know, he did that every day. I mean, every day he did that with somebody else, you know, from the highest levels, lowest levels. He was, he was always doing that. So I was there. And the first year I was an advisor. And the second year I was advising some more. And then finally the, the head writer, a guy named Dave Andron, said, well, Walter, no, you'd be sitting in the room. Why don't you just write something? I mean, you're a writer. Why don't you write an episode? I said, okay, I'll do it. You know, and, and it worked. It's gone from there. I'm an executive producer now. LA is very present in this series. Um, are there lines you can draw between Easy Ron's LA and the LA of Snowfall? Well, you know, the, you know, I mean, definitely Easy Rollins is around during Snowfall. I mean, the 80s and, you know, the crack epidemic, all this stuff, he's going to be there. Um, there's no, there's no question about that. And, and when you, and when, and when you see it, you know, when you see that it, 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 there, there's a change, you know, because when Easy first comes, most people are saying, well, I need a job uh, and maybe I need two jobs and maybe I need three jobs. And with that, I'm going to buy a, a house and I'm going to give me a car I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, browbeat my kids till they go to college. Uh, and I'm going to have a life. I'm going to retire. I'm going to feel good. I'm going to have a garden. I'm going to do everything. And there won't be any, 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 you know, peck of woods coming in and taking away my, what I own. Uh, by the time, um, you know, snowfall comes around, you have people, uh, angry and saying, I'm, I'm going to make me some, some millions of dollars. I'm, I'm going to be a part of, of the system you know, which is what Snowfall is about, basically. Um, so it's it's different in that way, but it's the same people. It's the same response. I mean, it's still Mouse, you know, saying, I, I, I'm, I'm part of the system, right? And you better say yes. This is actually a good place to insert 
the first question that I've gotten from an audience member asking yes. about this book, uh, your most recent Easy Rollins book. Do you think your comments on survival in the book are related to living in an urban environment? Um, yes, I I believe, especially like in, in Easy in 1969, every, every time, just before he goes into a place, he stops and he watches for um, uh, 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes to figure out all, you know, as much as possible as he can about the situation he's about to get into, because uh, that's what you have to do uh, when you're poor and you're black and you live in America. You, ha you have to check it out first. You can't just walk in and think, well, everything is fine, you know? Uh, and so I think that it's, it's a lot about how easy survived, you know? And it's funny because different people survive in different ways. There are young people who are younger than easy who live differently because they talk differently, they dress differently, they, they physically move differently in the world. You know, so you might find a younger black person not having exactly the same issues that Easy has if they've, you know, they've had certain opportunities. This includes his daughter. His daughter goes to a fancy private school. You know, nobody, nobody even questions her. She's not going to know anything about race until she's 18 or 19 years old, you know. Uh, whereas Easy faces that stuff every day. You wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times, I think it was 2019, about quitting a writer's room on a TV show. You didn't. You didn't name the show, um, and it wasn't. It wasn't Snowfall. I don't think because you're. It you kept working. It was not. But essentially, what happened to you was someone called HR on you for using. The N-word. Oh, no, it's fine. I, I, I told some, uh, I was talking to some people. The people were, we, we were talking, you know, writers talking. And, and one of them was saying, well, you know, listen, I was, I was, uh, I had a, a, a driving my car and, you know, I had a, a gun uh, in the car, you know, because, you know, I have a gun, you know, I'm, it's, you know, it's a guy, white guy, young guy. And uh, please stop me, you know, and I, I was nervous, you know, because the gun was on the seat. And, but we, I talked to him and he didn't see it and he went away. And I said, huh. Say so, yeah, you know, I was uh, you know many years ago in the in the in the sixties, late sixties, I was walking down Eighteenth um, Street to Robertson Boulevard, and a policeman stopped me, and he pushed me up against the car, and he searched me, and he asked me what I was doing there, and then he searched me again, and he asked me what I was doing there, and he searched me again, and he asked me what I was doing there, and you know, I was a little bit high, so I just you know pleasantly said. Uh, kept answering his question. I said, well, I'm walking down the street. I got a friend who's over there on Durango and I'm going to visit him. You know, I go to high school down the street, uh, Roberts, uh, Hamilton high school. And so the, the officer, the policeman finally, you know, he couldn't find anything wrong. So he said, okay, you know, you go on. I said, excuse me, officer, I'd like to ask you a question. And he said, well, what's that? I said, why did you stop me? I'm, I'm not, I wasn't doing anything. Was I? And he looked at me and he said, look, when I see a patty in a nigger neighborhood, I stop him. And when I see a nigger in a patty neighborhood, I stop him because usually they're up to no good. That's, I, I listen, I was a story. I experienced the story. I was telling the story. The policeman didn't say, when I see an N-word, uh, by the by, using the, the, the term N-word, you can use the word turn inward. You can say inward, 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 inward. No one's going to, they can't get upset because it's against the rules to get upset about that. 
You can't say nigger. But if you say nigger, then somebody's going to respond to that. Okay, well, that's, that's good. Response is good because that's what language is about. That's what America is about. That's what freedom of speech is about. But all right, so somebody in the room didn't like me telling that story, so they called HR. And then HR, the next day, called me, and they said, we, we heard you said this. They said, we heard that you used the N-word uh, in the writer's room. And I said, well, I am the N-word in the writer's room. Now, I wasn't the only Black person in the room, by the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I said that. And he said, well, you can't do that. You know, you can say, you know, uh, you can have... You can write in language that somebody used that word, but you cannot, you cannot use the word. And I said, but man, they've been using that word on me for 400 years. You mean I can't say it? And he said, no, you can't. You can't say that word. And, and I went, okay. And he said, don't worry, nobody's mad at you. You're not in trouble. I said, the fact that you're calling me means I'm in trouble, right? <laughs> and he said, well, yeah. And I said, okay, all right, listen, I, I got to go. And I hung up and I went home. I, I walked out the building. I, I tell you, I felt so great walking out of, out of, of that space. Because, you know, I mean, really, honestly, people are going to like be, yeah, because really, okay, if somebody felt really bad that I said it, we should be able to talk, right? I mean, I said, do I get to talk to this person? So well, I can't tell you who said it. I can't tell you who, who you know, who, who said this, you know, that they were upset about your use of language. And I said, well, then how do we settle this? He said, we settle it by you not saying the word anymore, you know, which is so un-American, right? I mean, I, I know my constitution a little bit, you know, I should be able to, you know, use language, any language, especially words that are in the dictionary. But um, so anyway, so that was, that was that experience. Yeah. Well, I, the way you wrote about it, I, you know, there was a big emphasis on free speech and yeah. Free free speech. <laughs> exactly. Free speech is uh, a big issue in the news uh, today. And I, I, I mean, this is this is a moment where, you know, someone's right to free speech and their right to express themselves in the way they want. And the beliefs that they have, you know, is really being batted around a lot in our national politics. So I'm kind of. Wondering really how you're pressing. Yeah. yeah, it's really being questioned. And, you know, and, and it ends up in that place where you have uh, a white person calling a black person on the phone and saying, uh, if you keep on saying nigger, we, we're going to fire you. So, like, I'm like, whoa, man, is that how you're protecting my rights? You're protecting my rights by saying somebody is triggered by my speech that, I, that I've been the victim of for 400 fucking years? <laughs> Effing years. And, you know, I mean, come on. I have another question from an audience member asking, a lot of black artists are developing agency in Los Angeles. Have you had discussions with any black artists that are ascendant about dramatizing any of your stories? Or what about it? Uh, Ascendant? Uh, I didn't get that word. You know, you know that are on the rise. Uh, black artists in Los Angeles. Oh yeah, yeah. People, you rise. know, people talk a lot, but you know, I mean, honestly, you know, it, it, it's 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 like like a business. I mean, uh, right now I'm doing. I, I wrote a, a novel called the Last Days of Ptolemy Gray. It's about a man uh, who's in his 90s 
who's uh, sinking into dementia, but there's a new medical uh, thing that he can do. It's illegal, but it's, he can do it. And he can get his memory back, but it's going to kill him. And he decides because of things that, he, that have been left undone in his life that he wants his memory back. Um, and so we're doing it. It's going to, it's Sam Jackson is starring. We're doing it at, um, at Apple TV. Mm. It's a lot of fun. Um, my experience is this, there are a lot of, of, uh, of, of all kinds of, you know, filmmakers, you know, people who are, are, who are, you know, part of the crew, people who design all the stuff behind the camera. And then a lot of actors who come up and say, wow, I want this. And directors that say, wow, you know, this is, I can work with this story either because of, you know, there's a major black woman in it. And then there's, there's Sam's character who's the star of it, uh, Ptolemy Gray. Um, there are a lot of people who want to do it. Now, when you start talking about stars, I mean, th- there's a lot of stars. It used to be, and I'm glad it's not like this anymore. If, if you did a movie about black people, every black actor you asked to be in the, in the, in the movie would be in it, no matter what it was, because they, didn't, they weren't getting that many job offers. You know? So it's like, oh, I get to be in a movie? Really? Okay. I mean, great actors, right? Um, but now it's different. You know, now it's different. There are a lot of stars, you know, a lot of big people who are doing stuff. And, and those people, you know, a lot, you know, that you said, well, I got this movie. I just wrote it. You want to be in it? And they said, well, you know, uh, my base is uh, three million for, uh, you know, a, a television series. And, and I said, well, man, I only got 300,000. So, well, you better, you better find somebody else then. You know, and that's good. That's good. I mean, because, you know, people should be moving on up. But as they ascend, it might be that, you know, a, a smaller show like the one I'm doing is not going to, you know, I'm not going to be able to get them. You know, I may be able to get one, but I'm not going to be able to get two, you know. You started a publishing certificate program with City University yeah. of New York, 1998. This was out of concern for the lack of diversity at all levels of publishing. Yeah, that was. Um, I took over a a, a, a little part of of, uh, of the movement of of. Uh, there's an organization called Pen Poets, Essays, and Novelists. It's a, it's a, a nat- an international organization, and it and it has a membership in every country, uh, and and they they do a lot of work, and and, and they started a thing about you know um, making publishing uh, uh, more available. Uh, to people of color, but 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 really, they were only interested in in writers, and you know, writers were already doing well because black writers were writing or Chicano writers were writing, and people were buying it. But you know, I was arguing. I said, well, but there's no uh, there's no editors, there's no sales force, there's no uh, marketing force, there's no uh, b- b- editor. I mean, all the all the different jobs that you, that people do to put those books together were white people, and and they were white because there's a truth about America. If your business doesn't do uh, business with the government, either state or federal, then nobody cares if you hire who you hire. They can't tell you who to hire. You know, you got a business, you know, so publishing uh, has always been a white business. The people in the business hire their friends from, you know, from Harvard and Princeton and Yale and Brown and whatever, right? Um, there were no, or very few people of color, certainly very few black people uh, in publishing. And so 
I kept saying that. And they said, yeah, but we're worried about getting people published because we're a writer's group. And, you know, and I said, well, okay, fine. And I quit. Uh, and I went to city college and I, and I had, I had $10,000 and I said, I went, I knew the president of, uh, of, uh, city college because she was on the board of national book awards. And I was also on that board. Uh, and I said, so if I give you $10,000, can we start a publishing institute? Now, of course, $10,000 is no money for a college, but she was nice. She liked me. And she said, okay, Walter, you can do that. And, and so we started this publishing institute, uh, people from publishing, mostly white, you know, who are, who are, uh, editors and, uh, and marketing people and publicists and, you know, sales, they came and, and taught the people of city college, some of which were white, some of which were, you know, Hispanic, some of which were black but they all work together. And so as those people started to move up and get into publishing through the connections that they made, they found that it was easier than, you know, the one off you hire one guy and uh, he's, and he's the only black guy there. And, you know, he said, well, listen, if you just, you know, get your hair a little blonde and, you know, maybe you'd be okay, you know, but, but, uh, and, you know, listen, it's not, it's certainly not the end all the organization's been there for over 20 years. Uh, the, the the publishing institute, but you know it, it has some impact and it has some things. You know, it's very funny because you know I started it, but you know I I don't do anything in it. I just started it. And I think the question mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you if you is if you feel like publishing has made strides in diversity. Well, that, I think that, it's starting to make strides. You know, I've I've made a lot of enemies in publishing. You know, uh, one woman I I can think of. She's a, a big time editor now. She runs one of the biggest houses. And uh, she, she she asked me. She said, "Listen, we what what do you think? I, we hire uh, try to hire black people. They don't want to stay with us. So why do you think we that's that is?" And I said, "Well, it's because you're racist. That's why." And we've never been friends since that day. But that's okay because she was being racist and she didn't know it. It so happens that where she publishes just did a big study to say, "Hey, we've been racist for the last thirty years and we didn't know it." You know, which is you know. I mean, it's like you could say, you've been racist and you didn't know it. So, so uh, are you going to pay me or what? You know, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's it's a really interesting, it's, it's a really interesting thing because, you know, it, it's almost heartbreaking to know that in order for somebody to come back and study who they hired, who they didn't hire, all you have to do is have a, a completely innocent man being choked to death on the, on a, in the middle of the day on the street in the middle of a city. Say, okay, you know, you know, what am I supposed to say? Lucky that happened. Lucky that 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 somebody you know stepped on his throat for eight and a half minutes and killed him. So now uh, the publishing says, oh, you know, I think we might have done something wrong. Or television says, oh, I think we did something wrong. Or you know, whoever you know. Um, it's, it, it's, 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 you know, it's upsetting, you know, but of course, you know, I mean, as my father would say, so, so Walter, what's new? That's what he would say to me about that. And he said, so what's new? I said, he said, how, how long you, you, you going to ride that horse, you know? And, you know, and I have to say, okay, fine. You're right. You're right. You know, cause if I lose my temper, it hurts me, not anybody else. Interesting. I obviously lots of institutions turning inward and trying to figure out if they've been racist and then coming out and saying, yeah, we have, we're working on this 
And I wanted to ask you what you thought of that, but you just told me. So what I thought of it is, I want to say fuck you, but I know I should. Okay, all right. Um, uh, Several questions coming in from the audience, really about you as a person and as a writer. Um, When did you start writing? Was it when you were really young? Like, when do you think you started writing as a writer? I started writing and I was 34 years old. I was a computer programmer working at Mobile Oil on 42nd Street in Manhattan. It was Saturday because I was a consultant. I was in there and I was working on my little computer program and I got tired of it. And instead, I wrote a sentence. The sentence was, on hot, sticky days in southern Louisiana, the fire ants swarm. Now, I wrote that sentence. I went, wow, that's that sounds like it could be the beginning of a novel. Hmm. Maybe I wrote it. So maybe I could write another sentence like that, you know? And I said, maybe I'll try to be a writer. I was 34. Um, and, you know, I started looking into being a writer. And by the time I was 38, I got Devil in a Blue Dress published. So it worked. Another person asks, are you a morning writer or a night writer? When are you the Definitely most... Per- morning. Ah. Definitely morning. No question. Morning. Uh, yeah, I must say... Uh, one of my acquaintances from the old days, uh, Octavia Butler, Octavia would, you know, it's hard to say whether she was morning or night because she would work all day, come home, go to sleep at eight, then wake up at four and write. I mean, is that writing at night or in the morning? I'm not really sure, but you know, but you know, I mean, who, and I say that to say anybody can write, uh, at any time as, as long as that's the best writing they do. What do you still have to accomplish? Oh, I don't know. You know. You know. What do you still uh, want to do? You know, this is so that's such a difficult question, you know. I mean I, You know, cuz I when I'm just sitting there, you know, in and here talking to you, um I'm not thinking about that question. Um, but if I start writing, you know, on hot, sticky days, I go, Oh, wow. Wait a second. And then another line and then another line. I go, Oh, this is, this is great. I'm, 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 something is happening here, you know? Um, so I, you know, so rather than, than seeing it in, on a continuum, you know, where, uh, I'm on a road, I'm on a you know, path going up until, you know, it's like, well, I'm here, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I meet somebody, they're really nice. I talk to them, we have a good time. Uh, I go to sleep, I watch a television show that I haven't seen in 40 years. I go, oh, wow, it's still a good show, you know? And then I start writing, I go, oh, wait a second. Now this is really interesting. So there are always places to go. I'm, I'm not always thinking about them. What is the pandemic had you thinking about the most? Um, what... I got to, were you putting finishing touches on this book, Blood Grove, uh, as the pandemic started? I think or... I finished it before the pandemic started. You finished it before, okay. Yeah, I turned it in. But, you know, then uh, I did the other book, uh, The Awkward Black Man, actually was, you know, part of the uh, pandemic. And I'm, I'm writing, a, I'm, I'm going to soon start a new book. Um, you know, I mean, um, but I mean, the pandemic for me is interesting. You know, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. 
a, a friend who, you know, kind of, you know, uh, prides herself on being uneducated. She said, you know, it's so interesting. We're having this pandemic and it's uh, pretty bad. And, you know, a lot of people are dying, but everybody's getting it. So the percentages of death are, are low. And, and what we're doing is we're having this pandemic. And it's probably pretty good because we're going through all the experience we need to go through. So when a really bad one, when the next pandemic is like an airborne Ebola, we'll know how to fuck to deal with that shit. You know, that was one thing, you know. And then the other thing I was just thinking is, you know, listen, we've come up with, with, with this vaccine unbelievably fast. And it's because of one, uh, how we're dealing with in our knowledge in RNA and allowing that to develop, uh, studies to develop. And on the other hand, about computers, that computers can help us do research much, much, much faster than, you know, as we used to do it, you know, with test tubes and microscopes and all that stuff. And you say, wow, so, so the pandemic is kind of like a world war. And the world war that we're facing causes our technology to take a great leap forward, you know? So, I, I mean, when, so when I think about it, those are the things I think about, you know, that, you know, it's, it's you know, what ha what's happening is awful, but, you know, in, in, in usual human fashion, we're making the best out of it that we can. The worse things are, the better we do. Are you, uh, binge watching you mentioned a tv show from 40 years ago are, are you yeah, are you binge you are you well, are you binge watching anything in particular is there is there is there something that you have gotten into reading or consuming during the pandemic that uh hmm. well again you know uh, for me I, I use television as an escape not as a as an artistic uh endeavor um one of the things that i am doing though which I'm really happy about. Uh, I, I'm doing a, a comic book for uh, Marvel, Marvel Comics. And, you know, I've read Marvel Comics my whole life. I mean, it, 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 my beginning of really, you know, my individual reading was reading Marvel Comics. And so the idea that I'm, that I'm actually writing a comic book right now makes me so excited. And I just like, wow. Because I kept on thinking, you can't do that. You can't do that. Because, you know, anything you really love, it's hard to imagine you doing it because it's so beautiful. Um, but I'm doing that. And I'm, that makes me really happy. It's not exactly an answer to your question, but I think it is. Right. It's okay. So we've reached a point in the program where there's time for one last question. So I'm going to ask this one that came from an audience member. How often do you feel you have to be the person to explain and speak for all black people? And how do you feel about that? I never think that I speak for all black people. You know, it, it's just like, it's like when a person come, comes up and says, well, you know what women think? And I always say, well, no, I don't know. And you don't know either because all women are not alike. You can't say, you know, I, I know what black people think. I said, shit, there's no even such thing as black people. What, do, what are you talking about? You know, it, 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 it's a thing. The, the, how I look at it, there's a dialogue that we get into. I get a, you know, I'm lucky because I write novels. So I'll write a novel and people will read it and they'll think about it. They'll accept some things, they'll reject other things. And in some ways, they'll just start thinking in completely new ways that I hadn't even thought of, you know. And so the, the idea is, is we're in a dialogue. 
and that dialogue helps to, to, to open uh, uh, minds and help us think in ways that, that might not have been possible before, you know, I wrote that story. But it wasn't that my, it was my intention to have that dialogue. It's that I wrote the story, somebody read it, and then the dialogue comes from there. So you never feel put on the spot, obligated to speak on behalf of a people. No, I mean, because, you know, I mean, one, it, it doesn't make any, any sense to do, you know, I mean, um, you know, I, I, I do things, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm on the board of the nation. In 2008, I went to the board and I said, look, um, the economy is tanked. Obama has been elected. People are talking about bailing out the banks. And I said, the banks stole the money. You know, it wasn't just the banks. But all those, those, those financial institutions, they stole the money. We should give $40,000 to every American who makes $40,000 or less a year over the last three years. And I was told by the board, I said, you're crazy. We have to give the money to the banks. And I said, but the banks stole the money. I said, that's, that's overly simplistic. I'm still on the board, by the way. <laughs> um, and I, I was so upset because I was so certain I was right. I said, but, well, but if I gave money, listen, if I gave money out to um, anybody, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're, if you're an electrician, if you're a, a bricklayer, if you're, you're a nurse, if you're a cook, if you're a janitor, it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter. You could spend the money on the car, on your kid's education, on a prostitute in Las Vegas. It doesn't matter. If you spend the money, it goes back in the economy. And if it goes back in the economy, it goes back in the bank. So we're bailing the banks out. But before they get bailed out, we give it to the people to spend it a little bit and make it into the banks. Now, I was, that was, to me, that was a, it was heartrending that they didn't understand what I was talking about. Everybody had a better education than me. Everybody went to Harvard and MIT and all this shit. And now, all these years later, same thing happens, right? The pandemic, same, same thing. And People say, oh, yeah, let's give money to the people. And I, I'm, I feel vindicated. I said, right. We should have done it in 2008, you know, and it would have been just as good. What, what, what does it hurt to give money to people? I mean, the banks is made up of people. We give money to them, you know, and you better believe you give money to Bank of America they, they, and you come to them and say, can I borrow $10,000? They'll say, well, do you have $10,000? I said, well, of course I don't have $10,000. That's why I'm asking to borrow it. I said, well, I can't borrow We can't lend it to you unless you already have it. You know, I mean, that's, that was the thing, you know? Um, so, you know, and you know, that doesn't have anything to do with man or woman, black or white, you know, rich or poor, young or old. It's just, how do we deal with, with our own uh, culture, you know? And it might be that black people understand it a little better than other people. I think I was the only black person in the room when we had that discussion. Uh, but the idea to say, well, shit, you know, you know, cause it makes it, it doesn't matter. But I mean, that, that's the way I'm thinking. Walter Mosley, it's been an honor to speak with you. I want to thank you very much for giving us an hour. Um, thanks so much. Thanks for all you've written. Keep it coming. Uh, p people obviously have a lot of time to read things. Thank you very That's much. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Brian. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot for giving me the space. 
This program and others will soon be published on the Commonwealth Club website at www.commonwealthclub.org. Remember, please pick up a copy of Blood Grove to read the latest adventures of Easy Rollins. It is a fantastic book, either at Marcus Books in Oakland or wherever books are sold. I'm Brian Watt of KQBD. This Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 